Hi, Amy and friends. Uh, my name is Carolyn. I'm a comedy writer. I am... <laughs> I feel like I have to identify myself with, like, my... Uh, my my lonely my reason my lonely reason um i'm going through a breakup and it's winter time and it's just freaking cold and dark uh so i guess it's good timing for that um i have this joke that i tell myself well i'm trying to tell myself a lot of jokes uh, right now, but re the most recent thing that I, I, I've been thinking to myself in the last couple of days when I feel like really, uh, sad is, um, I just tell myself that, uh, that I, I'm just a nihilist now, just taken to, to, to believing in nothing because that's so much easier uh and i've been thinking about uh nihilistic cheerleaders uh so i want to i want to like produce this thing where there's nihilistic cheerleaders and the cheerleaders are all in a row and they're wearing uh the normal stuff and they're peppy and they say things like they say things like Life is nothing but chaotic noise. Nothing matters except for cute boys. Let's go Titans. Woo, pick it up, pick it up. Um, so that's what, uh, that's what I am right now. I'm a nihilistic cheerleader right now. Um, and that helps uh, the lonely. Hi, everyone. It's Amy Wilson. You're listening to On Loneliness. This is my holiday audio special. I'm recording it with my audio producer, Serene. Hi, Amy. And I'm also helped out by many, many of my friends who have contributed their voices to this project. And I'm also joined, of course, by you. We're going to do this together. When I told my parents I was doing this project, my dad <laughs> came out with the phrase, let's go hang out and be lonely together. He meant it as a, as a joke, I think, but um, I've been thinking about it since he said that and uh, how powerful that concept can be. Why am I doing an audio special called On Loneliness, specifically in the holiday season? It's a uh, very joyous, festive time that is placing a lot of emphasis on connection. And uh, I, as a person, deeply believe, of course, in the power of connection. But I think it's always important to talk about all sides and all aspects of a thing. And the dark side of connection and the happiness of connection is that you don't always get that, right? So no matter who you are, no matter where you are, I think every one of us has felt lonely at some point. In the holiday season, I think it's important to recognize that as 
the softer, darker underside of all the light, bright, happy things that we're seeing around us. So that's why I decided to start this show with an audio clip from one of my very, very best friends in the world. Her name is Carolyn Racine. She's the nihilist cheerleader, as you heard. Uh, She was able to pull out humor in loneliness and in a very lonely experience, which is going through a breakup in the winter, in the holiday time. And I admire her for that, and I want to follow her lead throughout this entire program by pulling out all the colors of loneliness, not just what we might think of, sadness, darkness, black, blue, dark purple. I hope that we'll see all of the emotional colors of loneliness today. And I have more clips from my friends who've chosen to share their thoughts. I have letters from my friends who've chosen to share their thoughts. I have my own thoughts. I have some of my favorite poetry that I'll read to share with you. And I have some of my own poetry to read. We're going to do this in three segments. They are experiencing loneliness, observing loneliness, and understanding loneliness. So let's start with something a little dark. years ago, I moved to New Zealand for a semester abroad. I would end up staying for six more years, having a long-term relationship with the Kiwi, doing my master's degree, publishing a book. New Zealand became my home, and I loved it. But in my first months there, I was so lonely. By month three, I had many acquaintances, but no real friends. I wrote to my academic advisor back in California, and he wrote back, describing his time in Oxford. He said, I remember when we were in Oxford, my wife saw messages scrawled in the ladies' room of Budlia's library. The first said, British are so hard to get to know, signed, a lonely American. The second said, we're lonely too. He finished, please keep in touch and don't be afraid to be lonely. My name is Dane Larson, and I would like to say that loneliness is not just a terrible feeling, not just a product of physical or emotional isolation. Maybe loneliness is the other half of a coin in our emotional change purse, opposite joy or some other constructive feeling, or maybe it's a language that allows us to understand one another better. The lonely pass by unseen through this world, unheard except by those who also know its bite. I would like to say those things, but the truth is loneliness just sucks. And for me, it's not just caused by being physically isolated from others. When my confidence falters, when the platform I have built for myself out of my abilities and experiences and knowledge starts to collapse is when I feel it the most. Even now, as I struggle to write this, there's a voice screaming from the back of my mind, you are not a writer. This would be easy if you were a writer, but that's clearly not what you are. Loneliness isolates me from my own identity. And the more I struggle against it, the louder it screams. And when it finally subsides, I am left with fragments of a self I must put back together. And each time, I have to ask myself, should I put these back where they were, or give up and start over? And I still don't have an answer to those questions. 
so I put the pieces aside and try to get back to normal life. And maybe that's the greater purpose here, the something else to loneliness that I'm trying to find. The breakdown and reconstruction of self, the affirmation of identity through loss. After all, I still call myself a writer, somehow. So this is experiencing loneliness. I have a little note here to myself that just says, loneliness, colon, it sucks. Expound upon this for a while. So thanks, thanks past self, for, for giving me lots to work with there. Uh, I think that uh, that's, that's the kind of top-level reaction that I and many people have to loneliness, which is why I'm choosing to, to start there. Um, we heard from two of my friends who had experienced loneliness themselves. I was particularly drawn to um, what my friend Dane Larson said about the anxiety of loneliness, of um, trying to write something and having that voice in the back of your head that says, I'm not a writer. I think that anybody who's really tried to do something outside of their comfort zone can understand that um, whether it's music or art or writing or theater. And, and that's a, an isolating feeling. I think he was very right to associate that with loneliness. And of course, uh, isolation is one of the most painful feelings for our, uh, us as human beings. We're social creatures, right? I'm going to talk a little bit more about this later, but I've also been wondering why it's hard to admit that you feel lonely if it's so common. But first, I'd like to share with you uh, what is actually one of my favorite poems of all time. Before I do that, I'd just like to take a moment to sidebar uh, and just talk a little bit about poetry appreciation, the art and the habit and the skill of poetry appreciation, which is something that uh, I've been trying to develop myself over the last few years. And as I've been doing that, as I've been going to poetry readings, giving poetry readings, sharing my poetry with others, et cetera, I've noticed that there's a lot of anxiety and, and fear around hearing poetry. I think a lot of people feel somehow that they don't have access to what the poem is trying to tell them or that um, they're not smart enough or they're not cultured enough to, to understand a poem, which I think is totally understandable, but uh, I, I want to make less people feel that way. Poetry is a very, it's an interesting mode of communication. I liken it to sort of having a conversation with somebody that you're sitting next to sideways and you're not making eye contact with them. Uh, there's a vulnerability to writing poetry and there's a vulnerability to hearing poetry. So my advice, if you want it, uh, for listening to the poetry that I'm going to share with you today is... Um, remember that. Remember you don't have to make eye contact with me <laughs> or the poet when I read it. And also remember that um, you don't have to try to understand it in the moment. Oftentimes poetry will just come back to you when you least expect it. If you let the words wash over you, you'll, you might find yourself remembering them at a later time. So as I mentioned, this is absolutely one of my favorite poems. It was written in 1998 by a Polish poet named Adam Zagajewski. It was translated from Polish to English by Claire Cavanaugh. And it's called Long Afternoons. 
Those were the long afternoons when poetry left me. The river flowed patiently, nudging lazy boats to sea. Long afternoons, the coast of ivory. Shadows lounged in the streets. Haughty mannequins in shop fronts stared at me with bold and hostile eyes. Professors left their school with vacant faces as if the Iliad had finally done them in. Evening papers brought disturbing news, but nothing happened. No one hurried. There was no one in the windows. You weren't there. Even nuns seemed ashamed of their lives. Those were the long afternoons when poetry vanished and I was left with the city's opaque demon, like a poor traveler stranded outside the Gare du Nord with his bulging suitcase wrapped in twine and September's black rain falling. Oh, tell me how to cure myself of irony, the gaze that sees but doesn't penetrate Tell me how to cure myself of silence. I think this poem captures a certain type of loneliness with such gorgeousness. Uh, I picture when I hear it or read it, I picture somebody sitting in a, in a sidewalk cafe, gazing out over a river, feeling lonely, which is one of the most exquisite images to me. But, but there's darkness here and sadness, the little you weren't there that's just snuck in there in the middle that leaves you to wonder, who is that you? Why aren't they there? But then the beauty of it is that you don't need to know because you insert your own you. You, you, you. So in addition to the folks who recorded themselves talking about loneliness, I have some people, some friends who chose to write about loneliness. And I have one of their letters to read for you now. This is a, a letter that I got from my friend Jim Mannheim, who I better know as Tex. He uh, hosts the Down Home Show on WCBN, Ann Arbor. It's a really great country show. You might want to check it out Saturdays. But I know Jim as, as text through that show. I also know about Jim that he is a world traveler and he visits Indonesia a lot. These are some of his thoughts about Indonesia. Jim says, People often ask me what appeals to me about Indonesia. The answer is complicated, but one aspect is that it's impossible to be lonely there. If you so desire, you can make 10 new friends within, within an hour of getting off the plane. An Indonesian woman living in America once asked me for advice. Her school-age niece had gone to prom with a guy who then acted like she was his girlfriend. She had no interest. I and other friends all said, she has to be clear. She has to say, leave me alone. My friend looked puzzled. We don't really have a way to say that, she said. 
thank you, Jim, for for writing that little beautiful little couple lines about cultural differences. I think so much is is summed up there in, the, in those couple of lines, and um, really makes me want to visit Indonesia myself. So I was talking about poetry appreciation and and reading other people's poetry, and now I'm about to put my money where my mouth is and actually read you some of my poetry. It's hard. I'm nervous about doing it uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that it's hard to go from reading absolutely one of your favorite poems that you think is a fantastic poem to reading one of yours, your own. Uh, as a writer, you'll never think that your poem is quite finished, you know? So there's that. Uh, and then there's also just the fact that uh, this particular poem is, is a vulnerable one for me. It's personal. And it addresses some of the things that make me personally feel the most lonely. And I hesitated to include it. I really did. Um, but I thought because I had asked other people to be vulnerable by sharing their stories with me, that it was only right that I should share my story and be vulnerable. I think I'm also asking you to be vulnerable by listening to this. So this is a poem called Imperfections. It's addressing uh, my fear of connecting to people, which is a guiding experience in my life. Uh, I try to counter it by reaching out to people and by expressing myself, which is why, which is something that's brought me a lot of happiness and good things, but that impulse comes from something that is dark inside myself. Um, so this is a poem called Imperfections. But of course it is a pain beyond words to see my own self as others see me. I can't forgive my jawline, my thick waist, my fluttering voice and lisp that my cheeks grow up over my eyes in photos. Of course, it never occurs to me that my cheeks are just trying to protect my soul. Why wouldn't they be when everything else about me is? To be seen, let me just say it, is my biggest fear and greatest longing. Should I not just say it? There is no watercolor painting, no street art, no ripped open animal carcass, no stand of pine that will say this for me. Quote, no one will ever love you for your honesty, unquote. The hand of the world is too cruel and smart. That I am a true romantic is the curse with which I was born. All I want is everything, a love that waltzes. I'm only a reckless observer, discovering what I already knew. Though the voice flutters and the jaw is weak, the heart does not speak, but is not dumb.
My name is Christopher Ankney, and I used to work at this upscale Italian restaurant. It was definitely the kind of place where you went to celebrate. And one night I'm subbing at the host stand and this tiny white-haired old lady walks in with her middle-aged daughter. I greet them and notice their reservation in the system. All right, I say I see a reservation for three. Will your guest be arriving shortly? And then things start to change. The little old lady bows her head and energy is sucked out of the room. Chatter muffles, forks and knives go silent, and I knew I had asked the worst possible question. It was her husband's birthday, she said, and they always come to this restaurant on his birthday. But the doctor said it's not looking good and wouldn't let him come. It's not a good day, she said. And she said it while tears welled in her eyes. It's not a good day. Her voice shook more than normal. It's not a good day. And I could see in her eyes and hear in that shake of her voice that she knew. She knew that while today wasn't a good day, her worst, loneliest days were still ahead of her. It was among the most heartbreaking things I've ever experienced, to know with certainty that you will only ever be more lonely than you've been before. It made me pretty upset for a long time. But I've thought about this tiny old lady a lot over the years, and it's taken me a while to see it from another perspective. If that day was not a good day and her loneliest days are ahead of her, that means she has had a long, long life full of love and companionship. How unusual that is! What a lucky life! At the same time, I don't really know how comforting that is. If I were in her shoes in my late 80s about to lose a lifelong companion, could I take solace in the fact that every day previous had been better? That in the days, years, decades leading up to my newfound fate, I had lived a less lonely life? I don't know. I just hope that we can all be even half as lucky as that old lady. Lucky enough to not to have to face that question until we're feeble, tiny old people with shaky voices and many, many more good days behind us. Hi, Amy and friends. Loneliness is kind of a weird topic for me to talk about because I don't, I don't think I know what it's like to be really lonely. Like I know that kind of momentary loneliness where you're traveling on business and you're in some motel in some crappy town and it's 3 a.m. and you can't call anybody because they're all asleep and you're like, oh God, I'm so alone. But I think there's another real kind of loneliness that I don't know anything about where it's always 3 a.m. in some motel and there's never anybody to call. There's never anybody who wants to hear about how your day went. There's never anybody just kind of hanging out in your head going, hey, hey man, I love you. I think there's, there's a kind of loneliness that I've never felt and I hope I never will. And it makes me feel like a fucking creep that that real loneliness is so compelling to me. I just can't stop listening to lonely people talk about what it's like to be really, really lonely. And you put me in a room and a lot of the time... I'm gonna sniff out the loneliest person there. And I kinda wanna just go keep them company. Just go chill and stand next to them and make eye contact for a minute. And sometimes I just feel like a suffering tourism. Like it's gross and spectatorial. And other times I feel like there's this vast, unevenly distributed reserve of unloneliness in me. And like I don't know what to do with it if not extend a little of it to people who are really, really lonely.
our second section is about observing loneliness, which is why I chose to start it with two very poignant, in my opinion, stories about interacting with others who you can tell to be lonely. Isn't that the other side of it, right? Uh, If you know that you felt lonely at some points, you know how it feels, you know it doesn't feel good. You see somebody who you can tell is suffering. As Christopher and Anna both mention, it's hard to know how to handle that. And I think that's a huge part of what makes loneliness so difficult is that it compounds upon itself. Uh, it makes it harder for the individual to reach out to somebody else, and it makes it harder for somebody else to reach out to the individual. And that is a horrible cycle to be locked in. I also thought when I heard both Christopher and Anna speak about the political aspect of loneliness, which unfortunately is very much in the news these days, the phrase lone wolf has come up a lot uh, in the news to describe people who do unimaginably horrible things. It's a very easy descriptor. It's something that's pulled out very frequently. Um, and, and I don't know how I, how I feel about it. I think that it's simplistic, obviously. It's difficult to hear as somebody who maybe considers herself to be a tiny bit of a lone wolf. But at the same time, I, I do know that in isolation, darkness and craziness grow because there's no external feedback to check them. But what I wonder is, how much is loneliness the real reason behind violence? What's the impact of groupthink, you know, dangerous rhetoric that incites a group of people? And what, what combination of those things leads somebody to do something violent? I felt that I needed to address that uh, today because of the various tragedies that have occurred uh, this past week. It's December 7th, 2015. But moving along to a more uh, maybe quotidian experience of loneliness, I'll, I'll share another poem, who is, which is a poem by another one of my favorite writers. Her name is Anna Akhmatova. She was Russian. She had a long career, and she was kind of the, the glamour girl of Russian poetry in the 20th century. A lot of Russian poets were kind of in love with her. She was married to a fellow writer. Uh, she was a real, real character. The sad thing about it is that a lot of her poetry hasn't really been recently translated from Russian. Uh, the translations that I can find seem to be very, they're very form. Formal is the word I'm looking for, formal. So they rhyme or they have stanzas in a way that modern English language poetry doesn't really engage with as much. Um, but there is a woman named Meryl Natchez who's translated some of her poetry recently. Uh, and I have come to it through that way and really enjoyed it. This is a poem called Lot's Wife from 1924. God's luminous messenger, 
larger than life, led the one righteous man along the black mountain. But regret cried out to his wife, it's not too late. You can still catch a glimpse of Sodom, the red rooftops of home, the square where you sang, the yard where you spun, the tall house, its windows abandoned, the house where your daughters and sons were born. She looked back. A sudden arc of pain stripped her eyes of sight, fused her feet to the ground, her flesh became transparent salt. Who will mourn this nameless woman? She seems the least of all we lack. Yet I, for one, can never forget how she gave her life for one look back. What I love about this poem is the way that it addresses loneliness or the threat of loneliness as, as a situational thing, as a, a decision, a choice that you can make or not make. Um, I love the way it humanizes the character of Lot's wife, who is so often kind of a footnote when you hear that story, and the way that it humanizes her by calling out the daily things of her life uh, that she is having to leave behind, the rooftops, um, the house where she lived. Loneliness is clearly a natural function of normal social life. It's the flip side or the consequence of empathy. Like I mentioned at the beginning, you wouldn't know that connection felt good unless you knew what it felt like to not have it. But what I wonder is, why do some people experience loneliness as a uh, temporary or situational thing? And why do some of us seem to be afflicted with it more often? Loneliness is dangerous when it becomes a chronic condition. I don't have an answer to that at all. <laughs> um, but I think that uh, I can tell about myself that I, I'm a person who will trend over to the lonely side if if left to my own devices. I think part of it is about being an observer. You can't truly observe something unless you have a little bit of distance from it. And that's something that I navigate and I negotiate as a, as a writer and as a poet. So I'd like to share with you now one more of my poems, which was grew out of a conscious effort to both observe and empathize with somebody that I saw on the train um, who was a very interesting, very interesting person. I still think about him. I still wonder uh, what he's up to. I also think that um, anybody who is a train commuter will recognize that feeling of seeing somebody on the train and just kind of having a fascination with them on some level, you know, knowing that you might never see them again, but you kind of wonder, where, where are you going, man? Uh, so this is a poem called An Account. The man on the subway wears earbuds and a do-rag and a sweatshirt with an anxious iguana on it, bright yellow. His companion reads Huey Newton and carries a pink plastic bag from Ricky's. 
Her curly hair, her perched pink knit beret are perfect. Her warm plaid coat, her black lipstick. They were on the train when I got here. They are black. His skateboard is hooked over the side railing of his seat. I hear the clicking sound and look up from my book, which is describing homesickness in delicate, exquisite detail. It is Brooklyn by Colm Toybin. I am feeling sorry for myself. He is solving a Rubik's cube. Swift and irregular clicking, well-practiced. I see him come close, one side all orange, and continue on. Can't leave that one side all orange, I suppose. The expression on his face never changes. Only his hands show what must be a huge and restless intelligence. I think of an octopus and how it will starve itself to death. I think of an octopus and how it will predict the future. The clicking stops. He holds the cube in his palms and they get off at 6th Avenue. It's not that many stops between 14th and 59th, he says to her. I have one more stop to go, but the itching in my own heart feels slightly better now. Now. Hi, Amy. It's Bo. Excuse my 40-year-old smoker voice as I'm still recovering from my cold. Um, So I'm going to go over three prompts. Loneliness is, the last time I was lonely, and the best part of loneliness. All right, here it goes. Loneliness is realizing that as a first-generation immigrant, no one before me nor after me will face the same problems as I do. The last time I was lonely was when I was reminded that I am a solo mediator in my parents' dysfunctional marriage. The best part of loneliness is realizing that I can be alone without feeling lonely. This is Emily Clater. I'm going to read a very short story by Lydia Davis called Lonely. I think it really captures the kind of loneliness of connectivity You know, we're constantly being bombarded with emails and text messages and alerts on our phones, and we we really start to crave these things, and that craving makes us really vulnerable. This is Lonely by Lydia Davis. No one is calling me. I can't check the answering machine because I've been here all this time. If I go out... Someone may call while I'm out. Then I can check the answering machine when I come back in.
We've come to our third and final segment, which is called Understanding Loneliness. And we heard from two people, uh, my friend Bo Wren and my friend Emily Clater, both of whom talked about their own experience of loneliness personally, but also about what they've done to understand or process that experience. What I'd like to address in this section is not only the sensation of loneliness when you observe it in yourself or others, but what loneliness can, can mean metaphorically and symbolically. Uh, in this connected world, uh, the issue of communication, as Emily brought up in her thoughts, is something that I think personally, I think we still haven't figured it out, uh, how, to, how to work with all the new communication tools to actually say something and to actually uh, get in touch with others in a way that's meaningful. I think now more than ever, we see it a division between uh, saying words and talking. I also wanted to specifically underline to you um, my friend Bo, who was honest and brave about her experience as a first-generation immigrant. She says that she knows that nobody before or after her will have the same experience. Something I've been thinking about a lot as I've been putting this together is uh, the influence of getting older on loneliness. It's somewhat commonly known that loneliness is a very serious problem for the elderly uh, who can get isolated very easily, who are often struggling to understand and, and comprehend and connect all the things that have happened to them in their lives. But I think that you don't have to be elderly to feel more lonely as you're getting older. When you get older, you see how big the world is and you can understand it a little better. And you also see how small the world is. So I thought this little letter that I have to share with you was an interesting perspective on both, both sides of that question. Uh, it's from my friend Lois Kane, who is a lovely lady who lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, she is in her 70s, and we are friends. It's been a fantastic experience to be friends as somebody in my 20s with somebody in, who's in her 70s. I highly recommend it. And uh, the bulk of our communication these days is in letters because we don't live in the same place anymore. So this is what she wrote to me when I asked her if she would be participating in this project. She says, I am working on this, but with limited success. I wanted to ask children, but they don't want to answer. But when asked, what do teenagers do about loneliness? 13-year-old Astrid answered, we have cell phones. Astrid has a buzz cut on one side of her head and long, smooth, fluorescent red hair on the other side. I am in Madison visiting family, so teenagers are my major communicants. I am the opposite of lonely, though I think it is common to be lonely in company, more so 
than when alone frequently. Miss you, parenthesis, lonesome for you, L. This letter makes me smile for, for so many reasons, not least of which the the sign-off there, miss you, parenthesis, lonesome for you. It makes me think about how that is a form of, of missing somebody, and it is a form of loneliness, is yearning for the company of one specific person. There are a lot of upsides to loneliness. I wrote here, maybe loneliness is like pain or an itch, our signal to do something, that it's not necessarily bad in and of itself. It's a sensation that spurs an action. One of the actions that loneliness spurs is often expression, just like this. So I guess that makes art one of the major upsides of loneliness. The urge to express is probably universal. It's, it's hard to make a statement like that. It's very sweeping, but I think it is universal. And I think um, about things like cave paintings, which are something I really enjoy thinking about, uh, the way it indicates to me that people for the longest time have had the urge to understand and compress their experience by expressing it in a way that is outside of themselves, that other people can see it. That's, to me, a lot of what art is. And it's also, to me, a lot of why I write. So I'll end, begin to end, with a poem here by Norman McCaig, who is Scottish. He had a very long career. He wrote a lot toward the end of his life about time and memory and family. Uh, he wrote a lot about being a widower. Those are really beautiful poems. Um, this poem was written in 1984, so he would have been in his 70s. It's called Between Mountain and Sea. Honey and salt, land smell and sea smell, as in the long ago, as in forever. The days pick me up and carry me off, half child, half prisoner, on their journey that I'll share for a while. They wound and they bless me with strange gifts the salt of absence, the honey of memory. We're coming to the end of On Loneliness. But before I start to wrap up, I want to particularly mention what I love about the Norman McCaig poem that I just read. And it is those last two lines, the salt of absence, the honey of memory. 
that absence could be like salt, something that is too much by itself, but in the right amount enhances other things, is a very interesting concept to me. I'd really like to thank everybody who has helped make this project possible. Um, I want to thank my friend Molly Roth, who did visual design. I want to thank my friend Bo Wren, who, in addition to contributing, also gave me some promotional support on Facebook. You can visit my Facebook page for more information about everything that you've heard here today, including uh, a downloadable PDF, which will have all the poems that I read. The Facebook page is facebook.com slash with Amy Wilson. I want to thank everybody who sent in their thoughts on this project. And I really do want to thank you for listening. This is a, it's a, it's a risk that you took with me when you decided to listen to um, something called On Loneliness. So uh, thanks, for, thanks for hanging out and being lonely with me. And I really do want to thank Serene for recording and editing and all of the audio magic that he's doing to make this sound so good. Thank you, Serene. But I also really want to end on, on somewhat of a, a happy note. That's important to me. Uh, as you've heard, I'm a very lucky girl. I have a lot of really great friends. And uh, I'm lucky enough to be able to do things like this that are interesting to me and that are creative for me. Um, but it would be dishonest of me not to say that there is a specific loneliness in my life, in my situation which is that um, I'm in the middle of a lot of things. I, I'm working on a lot of things. I'm working toward a lot of things. That's, that's a kind of loneliness. I, I often feel unsettled and slightly adrift. And it is the holiday season when joyous festivity is the word of the day. I love all of that stuff, I really do. Um, I love walking down Myrtle Avenue in Ridgewood, Queens, and hearing they have these speakers that pipe out really tinny, horrible Christmas music, uh, and it follows you, and it's sort of ghostly and, and weird and almost horror movie-like, but I love it. I love it. Um, it's, I love being surrounded by reminders of happy, happy, joy, joy. Uh, I think, again, though, that there is a, an aspect of me that also feels disconnected from that. Like I mentioned in our second segment, I'm able to observe it as existing because I don't always feel like I'm participating in it. For me personally, I'm trying to trust that my future is less lonely and that what I'm doing is building towards something positive. So I'd like to end with another one of my poems, the last of my poems. It's called The Women in the Land's End Catalog because uh, to me they really represent something, something uh, ambitious about one possible future. 
I think also I chose this poem to end because I want to, to end on a note of the future and the unexpected ways that it might turn out. So this is called The Women in the Land's End Catalog. Have long hair with wispy ends and deep green eyes that look straight into the camera, slight lines around the mouth and eyes, probably smell of cashmeran, that note in perfume that smells like off-white. Make me think, Maybe I should buy a raspberry cotton chevron tunic. Maybe someday I'll have a swing in my backyard. I want to look age as directly in the face as this woman looks at me from the pages of the Land's End Fall 2015 Women's Wear Catalog. I believe there will be stability there, a place to fold my treasured sweaters, I know two straight lines can only ever meet once, so it's a good thing none of us are straight lines. I know two straight lines can only ever meet once, so it's a good thing none of us are straight lines. I know two straight lines can only ever meet once, so it's a good thing.